0: January 31st 2019 this is the Hermetic Hour I'm your host Polk Runyon and tonight we air a discussion on the life and work of Victorian age British artist writer and designer William Morris 1834-1896 and his influence on our modern Hermetic revival. Now Morris was a renaissance man of many talents. He was an Oxford scholar who idealized and romanticized the medieval period and yearned to recreate Camelot in the modern era. He was appalled by the pollution, the social misery, and aesthetic mediocrity caused by the Industrial Revolution. And he believed that Karl Marx held the key to creating a utopia, although Morris personally admitted that he could not understand Marx. But we need to understand Morris in order to fathom the continuing fascination that our cultural elite have for Marx's continually failing system. With us, the gaslight era... And uh, we will see where a lot of today's progressive ideas got started. As you may recall, a few weeks ago, we aired a review of Tobias Churton's Spiritual Meaning of the Sixties, in which uh, the author concluded that many of the current political and social trends affecting our culture today grew out of that era of moral, spiritual, and psychological turmoil. Now, tonight's retrospective essay is something of a sequel to the 60s inquiry, because following the 60s and rising like a phoenix from its psychedelic ashes, we have the neo-romantic movement of the 70s. When the rise of neo-paganism, witchcraft and magic, the Renaissance Fair, the Society for Creative Anachronism, and the Cult of the Fellowship of the Ring, all of which were medieval in style and mythos, all of which were nature-oriented, eco-friendly, and all of which were to a degree feminist or at least anti-patriarchal in regard to religion, And this put the whole neo-romantic subculture politically left-wing, whether its devotees wanted to be there or not. Now, actually, this whole international psychodrama had happened before, and a similar social-cultural reaction had taken place. I am referring to the cultural rebellion against the evils created by the industrial revolution and affect industrial capitalism in Victorian England, the horrible working conditions, the air pollution, the poverty, the poor housing, and the shoddy mass manufactured goods. And as a writer, artist, designer, architect, and political activist, William Morris made a professional stand against all of these evils. Now, to summarize his life and career, let us read from Maestro Lynn Carter's Imaginary Worlds, 1973. This is a wonderful little book, by the way, which I highly, highly recommend. The father of modern fantasy was a Welshman whose family came from the Upper Severn Valley of the Welsh Marches of Worcester and later to London, closing years of the 18th century. It was Morris's grandfather who led the exodus, and he was probably the first to drop the Welsh app Morris in favor of the less ethnic Morris. His son got a partnership. That's uh, that's Morris's father. His Morris's father got a partnership in a brokerage, married the daughter of a prosperous Worcester, Worcester merchant landowner, and moved to the quiet country village. Of Walthamstow in Essex, near Epping Forest. And it was there that William Morris was born on March 24, 1834. Until recently, biographies of Morris, such as McHale's Life, have avoided any candid appraisal of Morris's tragic married life, veiling the details of his bitter unhappiness with bland Victorian restraint. The result has been a picture of Morris as a serene medievalist, a cloistered dreamer, rousing himself at times from his hand-illuminated poetry manuscripts to tilt at windmills, with the genteel fervor of the utopian idealist. Nothing could possibly be further from the truth. No intellectual aesthete, wistfully yearning golden ages that never really were. He was an intense, violent, emotionally complex man with the vigor of a bull and the vision of a prophet. His wife, Jane, seems to have been a shallow, sickly, moody girl. She was also a young woman of incredible, almost supernatural beauty, with whom Morris was passionately in love. It was his tragedy that she loved his best friend, Dante Rossetti. Morris hopelessly adored her, and this rather sticky menage a trois made his personal life utterly miserable. It also, perhaps, gave certain of his poems, such as the famous Defense of Guinevere, a fire and intensity which lifts them above the level of most of his facile empty verse. Some of us use the symbols of art and the images of poetry to build a private iconography wherewith to interpret the events and personages in our life. Morris did it the other way around, but I'm getting ahead of my story here. He came down to London from Oxford in 1855 with a sheaf of early poems in his pocket, love of the medieval in his heart, and a passion for Gothic architecture that he got from John Ruskin. His first friends were sensitive, aspiring young poets and painters, and into this circle of lisping exquisites, he fell like a thunderbolt. Morris was a burly, thick-bearded, barrel-chested man. He must have stood out among the bored, languid, artistically inclined undergraduates like a Zulu war chief in regalia at the Vickers Garden Party. <laughs> Naughty Pop on it like that. They were fascinated by this Welsh wild man who dominated every conversation with his bellowing voice and vehement gestures. A group formed around him, the painter Burns Jones, the poet Rossetti, the young Ford Maddox Brown, and while they drifted idly with every current, Morris had cited his true direction early on and drove straight for his goal with stubborn determination and an enormous capacity for sheer labor. He swept them into his orbit, dominated them with the intensity of his own convictions, and turned a delicate phylites into a powerful movement that altered the history of design in Europe. Very much influenced Art Nouveau. Morris and Company was established in 1861. The firm took England by storm. Its display was the surprise hit of the International Exposition of 1862. Spectators flocked in droves to gape at stained glass windows and hand-painted furniture, which so authentically captured the medieval spirit that some exhibitors attempted to have the work disqualified as forgeries, saying they were genuine museum pieces that were merely touched up. The firm walked off with two medals and an armful of commissions to decorate churches in Brighton, Scarborough, Selsley, and Cambridge. And such painstaking craftsmanship had not been seen in Europe for centuries. Before the firm was five years old, it was world famous, with commissions to decorate entire rooms at St. James Palace and the South Kensington Museum. At first, it was stained glass furniture and embroidered fabrics, Soon the firm began producing tiled jewelry, church ornaments, carpets, hand woven tapestries, hand printed wallpaper. William Morris's wallpaper seized the public fancy, conquered its taste. Before long, the walls of every living room in England were adorned with the exquisite designs, printed by hand in subtle colors. Hand cut in pearwood blocks, his designs revolutionized the Victorian decor. And ushered in an era of Art Nouveau. By the way, you can see a lot of this on on the internet uh, if you want to look up William Morrison and, 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 and his beautiful, beautiful work. Morrison Company was a commercial triumph with works at Merton Abbey and a plush showroom on Oxford Street. William Morris was a success in every endeavor he attempted. Every endeavor, that is, except the closest of human relationships, that of a man and his wife. From Ruskin, he had learned to adore Gothic architecture, and he tirelessly championed the preservation of ancient buildings and their loving, careful restoration. From Thorpe's northern mythology, he caught a passion for the Icelandic sagas. He traveled to Iceland to explore on foot the very ground the saga heroes had walked. And from his enormously successful translation, a generation of readers learned to love a great literature. A generation that included E.R. Edison, Fletcher Pratt, and C.S. Lewis, and Revolted by the shoddy wares, the inhuman slums, and the ugly factories, the ruthless exploitation of labor, and the ferocity of laissez-faire capitalism, Morris fired his generation with his own passionate hatred of the Industrial Revolution and brought socialism into England. He was a man of many passions. He was also a man of protean talents, tremendous vigor, dogged determination, and fanatic vision. But he was right about most things, and artists as far apart as Chaluse-Latwright and Frank Lloyd Wright have hailed him. In the last six years of his life, he founded the Clunscott Press and printed the most perfect and beautiful books of his age, hand-printed books set in hand-cut and which he had himself designed, books so exquisitely illustrated, printed, and bound that they are among the finest works of the bookwright's art produced since the Middle Ages. Almost as an afterthought, he invented the fantasy novel. It came about in this way. In 1888, he had finished an historical romance called The House of the Wolflings, a novel about noble and enlightened Saxons battling against the invading legions of Rome. This was the first of a series of prose romances that were to occupy his last years. He followed it at once with the Seconds, The Roots of the Mountain, and both were published the following year, 1889. Now, The House of the Wolfings was a good, rousing adventure story, but it was nothing particularly new. It was, after all, just another historical novel of the sort of things Sir Walter Scott had been writing 20 years before William Morris was born. And by the way, William Morris, I'm I'm, I'm I'm interrupting Lynn here to mention that William Morris doted on Sir Walter Scott's novels when he was when he was a kid. He just he just ate them up. That was Ivanhoe, you know, and Rob Roy, and and uh, we're, they were they were very romantic, and and that's where he got his his fascination for for the medieval. Um, Morris was things that would be all his own, and it may be that he found working within a known historical geographical context, uncomfortably uh, confining, or perhaps something excitingly original and different was needed to crown a long career. Morris was 55 when the House of the Wolfings appeared, and he had only seven years left. Almost as if he knew his time was running out, he began writing at a furious rate, producing romance after romance some of such prodigious length that they require uh, printing in two volumes. One of the last romances ran over a quarter of a million words, the longest written in the genre until The Lord of the Rings. In the last nine years of his life, he produced a body of fiction equal to the lifelong output of many novelists. He turned immediately to the composition of News From Nowhere, a utopian romance serialized in the Commonweal, a socialist magazine that he had founded and first edited years before. The first book version appeared in America in a printed edition taken directly from the magazine serialization. Morris was too busy to bother about it. He was launched upon the last phase of a magnificent artistic career. He would, in all, create seven great romances— and upon the greatest of them, the central tradition of modern fantasy would be founded. News from Nowhere was completed in 1890, when he was 56. He immediately began another romance, this time a novella called The Story of the Glittering Plain. This story told of of Half-Life and his quest for the country of eternal youth. And it is oddly reminiscent... Of Gilgamesh, it was published the following year. The first book from, from uh, Clumscott Clems, Press. Morris was finding his way to something no one else had done before, before him to any extent. The romantic quest story, laid in an imaginary medieval wordscape, offered exciting possibilities. He was the first to explore them. He began planning a major romance. It would be a long, adventurous quest like the grail romances told in a limpid prose style of lyric simplicity studded with quaint anachronisms, a narrative style borrowed from Mallory. He would set the scene in a fresh scrubbed morning world painted in the clear primary colors of a medieval tapestry. The romance would open in the ordinary bustling workaday world symbolized by the city of Langdon and then it would it would follow the wanderings of a nightly young hero out into a hazy landscape of dewy meadows and green hills where old magics linger yet from yet-and-not-forgotten um, yet, yet and not forgotten elder days. And at length it would stray beyond the world of men into the gloom of the shadowy and mysterious forests where strange creatures lurk, a timeless realm of enchantments dominated by a veiled woman of queenly and magnificent beauty. And so he wrote The Wood Beyond the World, the first great masterpiece of the imaginary world tradition, the fountainhead from which imaginative literature springs. It was published in 1894, a century after, after Bedford's Weithick. His end was almost upon him, he labored prodigiously, and with that grim determination and tremendous capacity for sure work, that all was amazed weaker men. Great romances poured from his pen, and by the end of August of April 1895, he had finished the Water of the Wondrous Isles. Lord Tennyson died, and passing over Swinburne of the laureate ship was offered to Morris. He declined the honor. Time was running out. He strove no more in the area of politics for social reform. His work in the labor movement was ended. There was no time left. And in 1896, he published that astounding masterpiece, The Well at World's End. It was the noblest of all the quests, the search for utter bull at the world's edge where one may drink of the waters of the well and find peace. He had composed this enormous work, 228,000 words long, in less than four years, and it was followed almost immediately by another story, The Sundering Flood, but that was the last romance. These last years he spent at Clemscott, a little village on the Thames shore near Hammersmith, in the house where George MacDonald had written The Princess and the Goblin, and at the back of the North Wind, but it was William Morris who made it famous. It was there in 1896 that he reached the utter bowl of his life, and I hope that he too drank peace at last. William Morris died on October 3rd at the age of 62 and was buried in the churchyard at Clemscott Village. He was not forgotten. And so ends Lynn Carter on William Morris. Now, we may conclude that as Lancelot and Guinevere destroyed the round table, so Dante and Jane destroyed Morris. In trampolining, at least, at least in in, in his interior. Now, uh, we mentioned we mentioned uh, a couple of his works, and we're gonna we're gonna do so. Uh, we're gonna get into summaries of them. Uh, the, the political the political one was News from Nowhere, and here's a summary of that. The narrator has been told a story by a friend from the Socialist League of the in Victorian England which he informs the reader he will tell from the first The character who tells others to call him William Guest. And later then in, in, in the story, he goes to sleep in late 19th century England, and he wakes up in the same spot in 21st in the 21st century. He is taken under the wing of Dick Hammond, who shows him life in the 21st century by inviting him to travel up the Thames to help with the harvest. On the way, William is able to learn about the history of England between the 19th and the 21st century, especially from Dick's great-great-grandfather, Old Hammond, and about the current society in England, which differs from, from the England of the 19th century in many ways, including the system of education, justice, and marriage. They also pick up and drop off a number of characters along the way, the most prominent of whom are... Dick's past lover Clara, and William's love interest Helen. Dick, William, Clara, and Helen reach the site where Dick's friend, Dick has friends harvesting after a number of days of tra- travel. And after William has revealed where and when he is, tr- uh, where and when he is truly from to Helen. at a festive dinner, the other characters suddenly stop being able to see William. And he walks away into a black fog, and he wakes up in the 19th century, when he says that what he saw was more a vision than a dream. And here follows a summary of the well at world's end. and this this is a huge book, by the way, and and, 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 and very much influenced by Mallory. Uh, you know and of course it, and it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic world, like like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Using language with elements of the medieval tales, which were his models, Morris tells the story of Peter, king of Upmeads, and his four sons, Blaise, Hugh, Gregory, and Ralph. These four sons decide one day that they would like to explore the world, so their father gives them permission, except for Ralph, who is to remain at home to ensure at least one living heir. From that point on, the plot centers on the youngest son, Ralph, who secretly departs contrary to his father's orders. Ralph's explorations begin at Borten Abbas, after which he goes through the, the Wood Perilous. And he has various adventures there, including the slaying of two men who had entrapped a woman. And that woman later turns out to be the Lady of Abundance, who later becomes his lover for a short time. In one episode, Ralph is staying at a castle and inquires about the lady of the castle, the so-called Lady of Abundance, whom he has not yet seen. And descriptions of her youth and beauty suggest to him that she has dropped from the wall at World's End, and now in his in his heart waxed the desire of that lady. And once seen, as as he deemed in such strange wise. But he wondered within himself if the devil had not sown that longing within him. A short time later, while still at the castle, Ralph contemplates images of the lady and was filled with the sweetness of desire when he looked upon them. Then he reads a book containing information about her and his desire to meet the Lady of Abundance Flames higher. And when he goes to bed, he sleeps, and for the very weariness of his longing, he fears leaving the castle, because she might come while he was gone. Eventually, he leaves the castle and meets the Lady of Abundance, who turns out to be the same lady he had rescued some weeks earlier from the two men. When he meets her this time, the lady is being fought over by two knights, one of whom slays the other. The knight nearly kills Ralph. But the lady intervenes and promises to become the knight's lover if he would spare Ralph. Eventually, we begin to what we know about uh, uh, Morris's, uh, uh, the Morris's personal life is beginning to show in this thing, isn't it? Uh, eventually, she leads Ralph away during the night to save Ralph's life from this night, and since Ralph had once saved hers, she tells Ralph to the well at, uh, at the world's end, her drinking of the water. The tales of her long life and a maiden named Ursula, whom she thinks is especially suited to Ralph. And eventually, the knight catches up with them, and kills her with his sword while Ralph is out hunting. And when Ralph's return, the knight charges Ralph, and Ralph puts an arrow through his head. Oh, that's got to hurt. And after Ralph buries both of them, he begins a journey that will take him to the well of worlds at world's end. And as he comes near the village of Whitewall, Ralph meets a group of men, which includes his brother Blaze and Blaze's attendant Richard. Ralph joins them, and Richard tells Ralph about having grown up in in Swedenham, from which two men and one woman had once set out for the well at world's end. And Richard. Had never learned what happened to these three. Richard promises to visit Swedenham and learn what he can about the well at World's End. Ralph falls in with some merchants led by a man named Clement, who travel to the east. And Ralph is in search of the well at World's End, and they are in search of trade. And this journey takes takes him far over the over the east in the direction of the well, and through the villages of Cheeping Know and Goldberg, and many other hamlets. And Ralph learns that a maiden whom the Lady of Abundance had mentioned to him has been captured and sold as a slave. He inquires about her, calling her his sister. And he hears that she may have been sold to Gandalf, the cruel, powerful, and ruthless lord of Utterball. That's Gandalf. Uh, The Queen of Goldberg writes, Ralph a letter a recommendation to Gandalf, and Morphin, the minstrel, whom Ralph met at Goldberg, promises to guide him to Utterbull. Now, Morphin turns out to be a traitor and delivers Ralph into the hands of Gandalf. And after some time, with the Lord of Utterbull and his men, Ralph escapes. Meanwhile, Ursula, Ralph's sister, who had been enslaved at, at, at Utterbull, escapes. By a chance, meets Ralph in the woods and beneath the mountains, and both of them, desiring to reach the Well at World's End, eventually their travels take them uh, to the Sage of Stephenham, who gives them instructions for finding the Well at World's End. On their journey to the well, they fall in love, especially after Ralph saves her from a bear's attack, and eventually they make their way to the sea, and on the edge of which is the Well at World's End and they each drink a cup of the well's water and are enlivened by it. Then they backtrack along the path they had earlier followed, meeting the sage of and the new lord of Ederbol, who has slain the previous evil lord and remade the city into a good city, and the pair returns uh, the rest of the way to Upmeads. And while they experience challenges, and battles along the way. The pair succeed in all their endeavors, and the last challenge is a battle against Then from the burg of the Four Firths. And these men come against Upmeads to attack it. Ralph approaches Upmeads, he gathers supporters around him, including the champions of the dry tree. And after Ralph and his company stop at Wolfstead, where Ralph is reunited with his parents as well as Clement Chap- uh, Chapman. And he leads a force in excess of a 1,000 men against the enemy and defeats them. And he then brings his parents back to the High House in Upmeads to restore them to their throne, and as Ralph and Ursula come home to the High House, Ralph's parents install Ralph and Ursula as King and Queen of Upmeads. Oh boy! Anyway, that's uh, 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 J.R.R. Tolkien uh, praised it highly, and of course, and uh, Jackie these uh J. R. R. Tolkien said, uh, said that he thought that it was uh that, that it was better than the lord of the rings but i i i you know I, that's just a, that's just a summary by the way i want to warn you if you go if you go on amazon to buy uh the well of, the well of world's end uh be careful because one of the one of the, one of the recent printings of the of it was uh, printed uh, printed on few. Oh, it's hard to believe that anybody would dare to do this, but these people printed this this classic. They printed it on eight and a half by eleven untrimmed paper, and then they took that whole 250,000 words and squeezed every every one of those words onto uh, onto about about 150 and, and sheets, and and uh, so it's virtually unreadable. Be very 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 careful. I'll be sure if you're going to get, if you're going to get the, get the book, get a book that, 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 that's properly printed. And, uh, in conclusion to conclude, uh, our discussion of William Morris, I would like to recall the Camelot symbolism applied to the presidency of John F. Kennedy in the 1960s. Uh, you know, and I can remember that myself, you know, as I've been around a while and, uh, but yeah, because we they they called Kennedy's administration Camelot, and you cannot help but wonder if William Morris's vision was somehow prophetic, and of course tragically fulfilled in that. Now, perhaps the once and once and future king, that's King Arthur and the Round Table, is better left in legend than applied to politics. See, Morris's first had this vision of medieval craft hills and 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 and, and serf peasants. Uh, and you know that, that somehow or other that that <laughs> that that was superior to to uh, the industrial revolution and and uh, big agribiz and 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 but you know I mean this is this is just it's very very childish thinking he was he he was he, he was in a uh, sort of an uh, arrested childhood he the, the population had expanded and and. Uh, and um, you can't, you just couldn't roll things back. But that's what, but 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 he did bring about this medieval revival. And of course, right during the time that he was doing all this, this is when the golden dawn uh, got started in in Victorian England. And so he had a lot of influence on, on the golden dawners. And then of course he realized uh, uh, we were going to be able to revive the Middle Ages. And so he he, uh, he latched on to Karl Marx, and he thought that he got the idea that Karl Marx Karl Marx's uh, Das Kapital and his his communi- Karl Marx's communism was going to be the the structure for for uh, uh, emancipating the. Uh, uh, the working class, and uh, but uh, as he himself admitted, he couldn't understand Marx, and then uh, of course Marx shouldn't even understand Marx, and Marx Marxism has never worked. and Every time it's been tried, it turns out horribly, and what we're seeing down in Venezuela right now this is you know this this is not the way to solve these problems. But anyway, uh, uh, you know in the in the medieval model, the church was supposed to take care of the poor. And, and the destitute, uh, and but the church, you know, they fail to meet that responsibility. They uh, all, all the money they collected for the poor, that they went in their own pockets, and, and you know that the, the pretense of charity just led to corruption. The same way it does with a socialist government on welfare, it all gets corrupted. You know, if Morris had spent as much time, I'm opining. If Morris had spent as much time studying the French Revolution and its aftermath as he put into the legends of King Arthur and medievalism and, and, and the spiteful fantasies of Marx, because that's what Marxist philosophy is, a spiteful fantasy, he might have really have matched his political contributions with his artistic gifts to Western culture. He certainly had a work ethic. But too bad it didn't work though, and so i you know but however we we should study not just his art, not just his art and his literature and his poetry, but we should study his life and his ideas because today we have the same we have the same problem we have our our uh, our artists, our entertainers, our creative people, our aesthetics. Uh, intellectuals are very, very drawn to this to, to socialism. But it doesn't work. And, and they, they're drawn to it. And and uh we we have to ask ourselves why we need to and they need to ask themselves why. So this is the reason why uh we're we're taking a look at William Morris because he certainly has influenced us. So I hope I've stimulated your thought a bit but I also suggest that you go on, on the internet and look at his look at his designs and his artwork, and, and his contributions. And, and if you if you want to and read uh, read some of his uh, his literature. That's all for tonight. And next week we'll be back same channel. And and until then, good night.